my pleasure to introduce the man who will be the special guest referee at SummerSlam. From one statesman to another, he shocked the world, and he will shock SummerSlam, Jesse the Body Ventura! This is Tribeca Film Festival Live from WNYC. I'm James Ramsey. And I'm Rachel Neal. All festival long, WNYC is bringing you exclusive coverage of the panels and talks featuring some of the biggest names in film today. Each day, you'll hear live recordings of the latest events from Tribeca with people like Spike Lee and Goodwill Hunting director Gus Van Zandt. But on this episode, 538 founder Nate Silver dissects the body. I've been out of wrestling for a while. And most people know I've been doing a lot of other stuff. But it's time to review for a moment who Jesse the Body Ventura is. Some of you may know Jesse Ventura as the pro wrestling character The Body, and others know him as the 38th governor of Minnesota. Or as the man who shocked the world. And the man who shocked SummerSlam. (laughs) More importantly. You think of someone like Jesse Ventura, and maybe you say to yourself, how did a pro wrestler become the governor of a state where all the women are strong and the children are above average? But if anyone can explain a political shocker like that, it's going to be data guru Nate Silver of ESPN's 538 website. After screening of 538's new documentary, Shock the World, Silver will talk with Radiolab's own Robert Krulwich, who knows a thing or two himself about the wondrous, surprising things that can happen out there. Let's listen in. Okay. Am I, can you hear me? Yeah. All right. Well, that puts me, that movie puts me in mind of this, a question I guess I always wonder when you meet somebody who likes to assay data and tries to imagine where a pattern is heading. This guy, the data, which was that extra 10% of the people who weren't there and then were there, that data wasn't there. Um, You know, so we have a database basically of every poll going back to 1990 in a governor or senate election. And this stands out as one of the two or three biggest upsets out of hundreds of races. So the irony is that if 538 had been around back then, um, we would probably have gotten that race like completely wrong. But, right. um, because there's just nothing to count, right? Well, no, so, okay, so to give a slightly more technical answer, when you do have a three-way race, that does introduce the potential for all types of dynamics late in the race. And part of it is turnout, yeah. That happens in every race, that you can have higher turnout than you expect. What makes it challenging is a lot of people will say, you know what, I am a centrist, center-left Democrat, and ordinarily I might vote Democratic. Um, but I like Ventura, I'm just not sure if he can win or not. So what happens, you have momentum that can build upon itself. People say, you know, fuck this, I'm going to vote for, for Jesse Ventura. Um, and they see the poll come out saying it's a dead heat, and they'll be encouraged to do that. So you have the reverse thing happen, too, where you'll have sometimes at the end a third-party candidate will fade. So in the UK election in 2010, you had a essentially third-party liberal Democrat candidate named Nick Clegg, and it looked like they were going to surge, and there was just like one more beat in that election, a debate where he didn't do so well, and they really underperformed their polling. So Jesse Ventura had, um, among other things, like a good sense of timing. If you held that election a hundred times, I'm still not sure if he wins it all that often, but he won it uh, one at that time, and that's what the one What do you mean? Like, like it, there's at least to watch that tell, he walks in uninvited into a situation. The two others are sort of standard issue. Yeah. And he's like funny and warm and different and clever and sexy with the wink and everything. So by the time you're done, you're charmed into the circle of participants. And I don't know how you can measure. Like that girl said, I'm going to vote for him, but I don't, I don't even know why. That little minuscule movement, because here I am and here I will be, is an invisible movement. Things, things broke just right for him. I mean, he did only win 37% of the vote. Normally, you don't win an election with 37% uh, of the vote. But you had two other candidates who were about equally strong. I kind of feel bad for Norm Coleman, the Republican candidate in that race, who lost uh, the governor race to professional wrestler, and then uh, 10 years later lost the Senate race to professional comedian, Al Franken. So he's had a rough go of things. 
Well, that makes me, since this is a film festival, I thought I would like to ask you just a couple of questions along the same lines, actually. But just to start off with, I'm just curious, what is the, your favorite movie that you've ever seen? I, so my default answer is Fargo. Um, Fargo. Yeah. I like, you know, I'm from the Midwest, so that kind of resonates with me a lot. Um, but I like, you know, I like kind of slow, contemplative films, actually. I liked Boyhood a lot, you know, during this past round of Oscar nominations, for example. You like which? Boyhood. Boyhood. More than uh, Birdland? Birdman. I, Birdman? Um, I, thought, I thought Michael Keaton was great. I thought apart from that, Birdman was very self-referential and inward-looking, and I don't know. It was a strange choice. I had a hunch. I don't quite know why. I was thinking, as I was coming here, I was thinking, Nate Silver, like if a movie begins with a man sitting on air, and then uh, who is occasionally actually a a bird man with all kinds of occult special powers, <laughs> that maybe, maybe you like a movie which is logical and you're not crazy about a movie which is just plain old weird. No, I'm the reverse, because like, there's so much, you know, I feel like there's so much structure in people's lives today, right, that I like, uh, I like art and I like films that... Uh, is a little bit more abstract, and that can communicate things through uh, the storytelling, through visualization, through whatever else that's hard to communicate sometimes through words. When you spend your whole time like reading words mm-hmm. and producing words and being in you know too many meetings and, and dealing with too many stories, then then that becomes I think really valuable as an antidote to the barrage of words. I see. Okay, so th- I'm, I'm thinking, however, that going to choosing to go to a movie is itself a little bit of an act of prediction. Someone says, hey, you should yeah. check out this film. Or, oh, I always like Meryl Streep movies or whatever it is. And so I'm just curious, when you decide, I think I might like that movie, what is the lineup of things that you're weighing? Cast, word of mouth, reputation, blah. So I tend to see a lot of movies at, at home or, um, or on airplanes or, you know, kind well, of. That doesn't count. Time. That's just called there. That's called, there. That's called I would rather sit here and vegetate for, yeah. for three hours or see a great movie. Um, but no, look, it's kind of interesting how uh, if you look at, for example, movie reviews or book reviews on Amazon.com, is my favorite example. Like every book, once it gets a certain number of reviews, gravitates for getting like four stars. And the reason is that um, the better it does, more people are like, oh, I'm going to like that, but the book might be catered to a certain audience. So for example, books that are about 9-11 conspiracy theories yeah. are rated really high on Amazon because only the people who are interested in 9-11 conspiracy theories are reading and, and rating those, I think. So, but, you know, I am interested in the question of you have, whether it's movies or, or, uh, or art or uh, food. I'm kind of a foodie, you know. Um, when you I'm have, asking movie because they're not going to be served anything but popcorn. So food's out of the question. Yeah. What you're going to get <laughs> is you're going to get a, a director that you like, an actor that you like, Something that your best friends and his wife likes. Do you? Do you like? I, well, let me ask it this way: How many times do you walk into a movie thinking, predicting, "I'm going to like this movie," and you're wrong? My threshold is is high to go see a film, but I would trust. You know, the I'm probably like everyone else. I kind of trust the advice of my uh, of my friends mostly, and um, you know, uh, so I don't know if I have a foolproof technique do you, yet. How often are you? How many movies do you see are terrible? Very few. I'll turn a movie off if I don't like it. Yeah. What if you're there? I don't think I've ever left the movie. In yeah. my life. I, I also think you kind of have to, if you're you know, at home or something, you can change the channel. I do kind of feel like, like I also won't leave like a baseball game early, right? If it's like Mets 2, Cardinals 23 or something, I'll, I'll, usually, say? I'll usually stick it out. Just Why? Matter, it's a matter of principle, right? You want to you wanna create incentives for yourself to, like, um, to you know, choose wisely to begin with. When you've choose wrong, can you, is there a pattern to your wrong choices? Like, did you walk in, you thought, I love Meryl Streep, and she just turns in a bad performance. Statistically, very rare, but happens. I mean, but now you know, you know so much about the movies beforehand. There's not a lot of excuse for seeing a movie you don't like, I don't think, right? Maybe that ruins the spontaneity of things sometimes, sometimes too. Um, See, because my dad... So he used to. We would walk down the street, and he would see a movie line. He didn't know that he never heard of it. Yeah. And if the movie line was like thirteen people long, he would just get in. He'd be the fourteenth. I would be the fifteenth. 
Yeah. One time, Bobby Kennedy was like the 16th. So I thought, oh, we should stay for this, because he was like right there. And I even got to sit next to him. But he, my father was completely random about movies. He knew nothing except that it was here, and he felt movie-ish. But would he go I, to the line with 13 people if the other movie had two people in line, right? So that's when, that tells no. you something about the yeah, wisdom okay. or lack thereof of, of a crowd. Let um, me ask it a different way. Let's suppose instead of going to a movie, you're making a movie. Like I, and let's say, just for the fun of it, that it's going to be a, you want to make a blockbuster movie. You're not trying to make a work of art. You're trying to make a successful movie. Uh, I think you could probably make a trillion dollars one day if some <laughs> cabal of Hollywood producers who make blockbusters said, Nate, just tell us what we need to do. See, there's, there's a whole industry devoted to this, and I'm, I'm a little suspicious how well it works. I did a consulting project actually for one of the studios a, a few years ago and on the one hand... Uh, on this very question? Like make us a hit? No. That way I would have, my consulting fees would have been much higher if I were successful at that or trying to answer that question. But we're just looking at movie going behavior among the audiences. I, I do think one thing that was apparent in that exercise for me um, is how, uh, how much movies are catering only to a narrow group of people, right? You know, they really like that under twenty-five-year-old male audience, in part because they're still um, they're still fixated to a degree that might be unhealthy on opening weekend domestic box office when that's now not necessarily the most important way a movie makes money back for the studio. Um, and you know, young men uh, still go to the movies a lot. I mean, the movie industry isn't doing terribly. I've never movies, really but. understood like why would a young man in a seat be more desirable to you than a 55-year-old lady in a seat. It's a seat. It's got a bottom. You've got a ticket. The money doesn't know who gave it to you. Because then you hit your opening weekend target, right? So the young men tend to go early. The older, wiser, I think, women wait for one of their friends to see it or maybe their teenage son or something and say, Mom, this movie's actually pretty good. And then because their time's more valuable than the average teenager, then they'll go, right? And I'm more like the old woman in that sense when it comes to... The movies. So um, the value of the young man is because the young man is impulsive and slavishly fashionable and must be there the first weekend that you can then get a grade early, which will then get you ladies later? Maybe, or at least, you know, it can also be That's the whims so of the industry. Dumb. Yeah. But the thing is, and if you make every film in the same way, right, then all of a sudden you're not serving the audience that well. If you look at kind of, you know, portfolio theory for an investor, you don't want to put all your eggs in, in one basket. Kind of is that simple. Well, but I, I it becomes so good at catering. To some people, that they forget to cater to the other people, right? Well, I on, on five thirty-eight on your site, Walt Hickey, who's really good—I don't know if he's here, but he's really good—he decided to look at blockbusters, summer blockbusters, and he just listed the things that seem to always happen. There's a chase, there's a falling from a height, there's an explosion in seventy-seven percent, at least one explosion, a showdown, meaning the bad guy and the good guy will meet, an exploding car, slow motion scene, open action scene, exploding building, an exploding body. He says there'll be a shootout, a fist fight, a gunfight, a punch in the face, a face slap, and a sword fight in that order. And where you get shot is either chest, head, back, or forehead, but very rarely is there blood if stabbed in the back. Yeah. Now, these are, all, these are all data, but they're the kind of data that says that somebody is trying really hard to be the same as everybody else. It's not yeah. like you just said. Yeah. Um, so... If your business is to be attractive to a 22-year-old guy, does a 22-year-old guy, unlike the Jesse Ventura situation, does a 22-year-old guy, can he be dependent to come slavishly to your next explosion, your next chase, your next stabbing, but only in the back or in the head? I'm going to butcher some Matthew McConaughey line from Days and Confused, right? It's like the freshmen are always the same age or something, right? (laughs) It's kind of like the 22-year-old is always the same age. You know, by the time the 22-year-old, and often it's really 17-year-old, right, um, you know, develops a different taste in movies, there's another 17-year-old who will have, you know, who thinks that this thing that he sees is amazing and this is the best blockbuster ever, um, you know. But I don't think it really plants the seeds for good filmmaking in in the long term. No, I wasn't asking for good filmmaking. I was making successful (laughs) filmmaking. Yeah. So here, so I'm asking you, when the people who make movies choose to make movies, do they, I would assume that if they could come up with some formula like this, they would make that movie over and over and over again until it failed. But it doesn't seem to happen. I think, oh, sure. I mean, look at the number of of sequels, right? Um, 
you know, it's something like, I think Walt did a piece on this too, um, or maybe someone at Grantland, but something like, you know, 60 or 70% now of the big blockbuster releases and how you define that's tricky, right, are part of a series or, or a sequel. There are not very many one-offs anymore. And it's partly because, hey, you know, this shit worked well enough last time around, why don't we do it again? Um, and, you know, that's, even though some of the sequels are good, like, that's kind of sad to me, I think. Well, but do, do, is there something that these filmmakers don't know about making a successful film? Like, it's true there are sequels, but there are so many failures that are spectacular failures. I mean, there's a Disney will spend an enormous amount of money, and they get that guy who used to be uh, Riggins from, uh, from the <laughs> Friday Night Lights. What's his name? Tim Riggins? Yeah. Who's, like, great as Tim Riggins. And then now he's suddenly a, you know, superhero and nobody comes. I, I, I'm sort of surprised by the, the these, these are dramatic failures. And there's something kind of pleasing to me about watching such a heroic <laughs> effort. And I think everyone roots for a spectacular failure from time to time. But, you know, or like a presidential candidate who totally bombs, right? You know, people would this take pleasure. This is from time to time. Aren't most summer blockbusters bad? I mean, not... Are they... I mean, not bad. not bad. No, don't make as much money as they as the people who made them hope to have them make even close. I I think they do okay as as a group. You know, I mean, most films kind of pay back the production budget with some multiple. The question is, what's the marketing budget? How much that revenue to the studio actually capture? Um, but part of what they're doing with the with the uh, sequels is that you're lowering, you're raising your floor, right? If you have a trusted franchise, then you know when a certain number of people are going to come. Although I know the studio I consulted for a few years ago was terrified because of social media tools like Twitter and Facebook, where it used to be you could, you could at least count on fooling people at least through the full opening weekend, right? And now if you get bad buzz on the first showing on Friday on Twitter and Facebook, then, then you'll see dramatic day-to-day -day drops in, in box office. Oh, really? So it's now moving at a much faster pace. It's hard, it's hard to fool people. And also, you know, if, uh, it's also harder to present movies that work for different ways. For people. If you have a marketing campaign that, um, you know, takes a serious film. This is one of my favorite things, by the way. If you go back and look at, like, the original trailer for, um, for Star Wars, how it was this build of this very abstract, dark, like, space epic and not this kind of hero movie, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And so I think that would have had a higher risk of failure now, right? Where, you know what, um, you didn't market it in the right way to the right people, and by the time you recover, well, the buzz is bad, um, and it's become too late. I'm not saying Star Wars would have failed, but I think that would have been a bigger problem for it. So if I were a big Hollywood mogul and you're you, and I hire you to help me make a success, and you've mentioned right away that the success will be patently obvious within <laughs> 12 hours of my launch, then what sh how, has this how, how can a person have a success in an environment like this? It's, it seems kind of frightening. Well, um, first of all, I think they probably... And let's say I want to just have a s revenue success. I'm not interested in artistic success. I just want all, I want a huge number of 22-year-old boys to be there on Friday night and Saturday night and the next weekend. So one thing is this, you know, that might not necessarily prove that you're going to have a successful film in the long term. So you can have, you know, Hollywood looks at multipliers, you try and predict your long-term box office growth based on opening weekend, and those vary a lot by genre. But point, part of it is that because they're so fixated on opening weekend in particular, as opposed to all the other ways to distribute a film, or the life a film might not might or might not have, which can be you know, higher on both ends now with, with the ability of social media to create buzz. So I'm saying partly they're probably not looking at the right thing entirely, but it's kind of out of habit that... What would you tell them to look at? Um, you know, I would look at kind of what the longevity of the film is, what the portfolio that you have. What does that mean, the portfolio? Meaning, are you actually, like, making films that all different types of people will like, right? I mean, you know, one irony about Jesse Ventura is that he was came across as very authentic, which in political campaigns, which in many ways are actually kind of on the same scale as campaigns behind major motion pictures. They're more similar than a lot of things. Um, it, can, it can be so focus grouped um, that he or she seems very inauthentic to a lot of voters. And, you know, it's almost like as a campaign now, you don't need a big overarching message 
anymore, right? You give a little bit of this to one group, a little bit of that to another group. Do you meet I'm a little bit curious about, like, I assume the boys bring girls to the movie. That's the point. It's Friday night. Why aren't the girls' tastes included in the folk? Like, you keep pointing to, like, I want to get those guys. I want to get. Is that because the guys are asking the girls out and the guys are going to pick the film? Because a lot of guys will say, you want to see this movie? And the girls say, no. I want to see Love in the Afternoon with the cat or whatever it is. And then that's what the guy has to see if he wants to be with the Well, girl. look, there are always a lot of ways to read the data, and the fact that Hollywood is, um, in my view, still a fairly sexist industry, right, probably you know, might lend too much importance to, to what the guys are doing. But also, they do tend to be, I think, um, earlier adopters for these kind of teenage blockbuster films, right? And so those audiences can be pretty male-heavy. I mean, I don't know. I don't go to these movies on opening weekend usually, right? But those, I guess I went to the, uh, the interview. The, yeah, I wanted to see that because it was like patriotic or something. Right, right, right. right. Um, pretty male-heavy kind of bro-y audience, definitely. But. You're listening to Tribeca Film Festival Live from WNYC. Coming up next, more with Nate Silver and Robert Krulwich. Uh, let me ask about about you. Um, you. You seem to have been a pattern finder, just like from your genes or something. When you were a little boy, did you like say one bus, five minutes, two buses, five <laughs> minutes, three buses? Like, do, were you always sort of thinking about periodicity, pattern, or? I think you're always trying to ask questions about about the world and say, how does this one thing I observe kind of fit into the larger pattern? But I also, you know, was a stupid, goofy kid at times, and I'm a stupid, goofy adult at times. <laughs> so, you know, you try to take things too seriously. But yeah, it's kind of, you know, I think that's a lot of what journalism is, is just kind of saying, I'm really curious about something in the world, and so let's go But there's an edge to what you do, which is actually pretty cool edge, is like, People are always leaping to conclusions quickly yeah. because it's fun and it makes you feel smart. Yeah. And if someone says that Eskimos have 300 words for snow and you <laughs> think that, you say, well, of course they do because it's like, nice to say. And then some person comes around and actually checks. Yeah. And you don't usually like that person because it takes <laughs> away from you the little bit, of, little bit of pride that you had for about 10 minutes. And so I'm wondering, was this easy for you to keep calling on people and saying, no, no, that isn't, you know, if you win in the Iowa caucuses, you don't actually get a huge bounce for winning. You get it in New Hampshire. So stop saying that. You're doing a lot of... of yeah, and believe me, there's going to be records, record amounts of bad punditry about 2016. I mean, you know, the level of interest is already very high. And um, Yeah, but I'm but, wondering about you. Like, like you're the guy who goes, no! <laughs> <laughs> And that can't be like the most fun thing to do. Like it would be much easier to say yes, but you don't do that as often. It's also fun to make fun of other people when they're wrong. That's fun too. We have a lot of fun in the office. But was it fun when you were eleven? When I was eleven, I you know I I'm, don't really. Did you do this? Didn't you say in the back? No, Eskimos did not. Have, I have just checked. And you, did you do that? I think when, when I was kid? like a young kid, I was like very kind of math driven, and then but I did like debate team. Uh, ah. in high school and got pretty good in part because I talked really fast. Like, for some reason, the rules of high school debate, you know, um, the more arguments you can get in a fixed length of time, you're like, oh, you dropped my, uh, you dropped my disadvantage. It's going to be a nuclear war now in India. Good job, man. Um, <laughs> but, you know, but that's also kind of training you how to critically examine an argument and read a lot of data. You know, that's really useful. Well, when I, someone shoots you and I hate you look, do you just... Uh, think, okay, well, I'm right, though. So, not always. I mean, part of what we emphasize is, is the value of looking at the world in a way that's probabilistic and, and you know, to a first approximation, people are too sure of themselves too often, right? Um, which is the irony of, like, why, you know, in 2012, 538 had a very good record. It got 50 out of 50 states right. Those right. are all probabilistic forecasts, though. So, to us, beyond a certain point, it's just like, okay, well, we had a bunch of coin flips that we happened to win. You know, that was. I'm just curious about that. On, on days when there's a big sports event that a lot of people care about, yeah. or a big electoral trend that a lot of people care about, and you've done your probabilistic research and you think you know what you're about to say is true, but it is, after all, a guess, do you sit there with a cool, kind of cool hand, Luke sort of mood, say, okay, here's what it's going to be, 
and just relax into it? Or do you like go into a closet and go, <laughs> and then quietly come out and pretend that you're cool? And no, I mean, you, I mean, the 2012 election, I was pretty nervous. I hadn't like slept the previous night. And, um, but for the most part... You were pretty nervous on the night before you got all 50 states right. Yeah. That's good to know. Yeah. <laughs> but also the election is a strange thing. Like you kind of go into this black hole, like the day of an election, where like you don't know anything that's happening, right? Like there's never been in the history of elections like any useful news account that happened on the day of the election until the first votes start coming in. Maybe you see the exit polls, right? It's like, well, high turnout in this or that county, right? It's just, you know, you might as well just go and, and sleep or something or go watch a couple of movies. Um, but, you know, then I was legitimately nervous, I'd say. But, you know, look, I used to play poker. I actually made my living playing poker for a couple of years. And in poker, you get to play out uh, hundreds of thousands of hands a year of poker. So you experience the fact, like, yes, I really can be that lucky and that unlucky. And you see all the streaks. And so that makes you a little bit more, more zen about it. Um, um, what about... Uh, well, before I, I finish that thought, I just wanted to know, like, how, when was the most scared you ever were? Was it, like, before? Because like, there's some, like, the Super Bowl where you just said, I don't think I can, this last Super Bowl, I don't think yeah. I can actually decide because yeah. these two teams are so good. I, like, usually somebody who's good doesn't show up, so it's a little bit lopsided. But this time the two goodies actually arrived to play. And then do you then, can you then go to the, turn on the television set and say, I don't care. Like, let's let it, because you no, have... No, I root for a good sporting event, you know? Um, and there are funny things, too, like, you know, so, for example, the NBA playoffs started this weekend, right? right. And we have a forecast that says the Golden State Warriors are 45% favorite to win, which has a contradiction. That means that most of the time, the Warriors will not win. They're just a better pick than any other team, and probably a little bit better than Vegas says, you know? So, things like that, you just have to get used to trying to explain probability to people and also the fact that, look, a lot of time I've been fortunate enough to get credit for what I think is pointing out the obvious. In the 2012 election that, like, well, the guy who's ahead in almost every poll and almost every swing state will probably win, right? You know, <laughs> not the most profound. Well, let's go the other way. Like, when was the time when you, were, when, when you wanted to be right but you were really, really, really worried you might not be? When was that? I mean, you know, I know how likely it is that I'll be wrong, I guess is one way to, to put it. Um, you know, there was the World That's Cup. That's interesting. There was the World Cup in 2014 where we had Brazil as a modern favorite over Germany. And, um, and, you know, it wasn't a huge upset, which is the fact that Germany scored like six goals in the first 10 minutes, right? That was a fascinating event because you're like, you know, you say, well, you go back and estimate the chance of that, and it's like a one in 1,000 shot that you'd have a game like that, right? But to experience a high-profile event where we always say, hey, look, we're very careful about saying anything is zero or 100%, right? There's always this 1% chance. Um, and if you make enough predictions um, and you're doing it right, you'll see that 1% chance come up, hopefully not more than 1 in 100 times, but you will see it, or the 1 in 1,000 chance come up. You know, we forecasted um, hundreds of sporting events, right? And so you actually see those occur from time to time. But in a lot of these sports in basketball and baseball, and I suppose in other businesses and like, like politics, what also has been happening in the last 20 years or so is there's just more and more data. Like the people who do these things generate more numbers and then more numbers and then more numbers. Yeah. Doesn't that get, I mean, this is getting harder. It's sort of like yeah, the movie industry where they say the Twitters are going to come and oh boy, oh boy. Well, you now have like 50 things to consider on a basketball game instead of seven. Yeah, and you see that especially in politics. Like, one reason why people, so many people got uh, the 2012 election wrong or thought Romney might win or make it very close is because, you know, there were probably 200 polls that came out in the final three weeks of the campaign. Um, you know, probably 180 of those polls had Obama tied or ahead. Um, but that means there are 20 polls you can take now if you're a Romney believer and say, well, look at this poll and that poll, and here's one from Ohio, and here's one from Florida, and here's one that has a, a better methodology than, than Obama's poll. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, you know, the well, fact you, that... You have to just hire more people to look at more things? It requires much more ordered and structured thinking than that, I think, right? And, you know, my kind of whole book's about... It's kind of a critique of the hype over, over big data. Um, you know, 
the scientific method is still the most important <laughs> technique we have to look through the complex world that we're in today. Which means well, that in the extreme situation, and this is a more serious question, I guess, is you have the United States government collecting, say, all of the phone calls that people in the Western world and the Middle East made, and all of the emails, and all of the this, and all of the that. Yeah. And the, the promise here is that somehow if you get all of it in a dangerous situation where of the two billion people being surveilled, 11 of them are up to a terrible deed. You have seven days to find those 11 people. You have all the phone calls and all of it. And then the question sort of raises in my mind, like, can you get from so much to something so little? Like, what? who do I really have to worry about? Well, Harry, and then Tom. some of the most important events you might completely miss. I mean, there was a lot of intelligence suggesting that an event like 9-11 could happen, right? Um, you know, rather specific warnings and and that was missed, in part because people were not used to detecting those types of signals. Another famous example is from, you know, the attack on Pearl Harbor way back at the start of, of World War II was, was missed, even though you look back on it now and it seems kind of obvious, right? Like, well, why do we have all our, our entire Pacific fleet, you know, at this one, in this one harbor in, in Honolulu, right? Like, that's probably a dumb strategy if you're susceptible to, to air attack, but we had very strong and wrong theories about, oh, Japan is not interested in actually coming over to the West. They would attack targets closer to them first, right? Um, so you can have all the data in the world. If you have a bad theory, um, it won't help you one bit. It will just kind of make you more falsely confident in, in... Is it a bad theory and a bad model? I know that's in your book you talk about that a lot. I, I, it sometimes occurs to me that something as quixotic as a person... You know, a person and let's say two brothers who decide to just blow up the end of the Boston Marathon. Yeah. How do you, I mean, you know that two of them have been, you know, suspicious and some have gone here and gone there. But it's those two, those brothers in that place at that time. And I wonder whether you have got any thoughts about, uh, since you, you are, you do deal in predictum, predictions and in data. I'm wondering, if you were the President of the United States, would you trust the ability of this, these large information gathering people to protect your country and the people in it, really? Well, I might also have, you know, philosophical objections to violating people's privacy, privacy first and foremost, right? Um, but there are all types of, one of the issues that then you do have data and there are lots of, you know, lots of motivated reasoning you can use to see the pattern that you want in the data. Or another problem, we just ran a story today on, um, on Deepwater Horizon, um, which was five years ago today, I think, actually. Um, and, you know, it's very unlikely you'd have an occurrence of that particular type of disaster. Um, but, you know, the oil companies are drilling deeper and doing more complicated things that involve more engineering and more science, different parts of the ocean, right? And so it's the thing that we won't see coming next time. Right? Well, is, are you just, are you, is your answer to my question, if I were the President of the United States, I... I'm not asking you whether you'd gather all the phone calls and gather all the emails, but would you have a, the thought that if you stopped gathering those things, you might be <laughs> defenseless or have less ability to protect your citizens? See, this is why I don't want to become president. <laughs> um, <clears throat> you know, I don't know. I mean, there's a whole security, national security apparatus, and I'm sure that when you become president, they're kind of interest telling you that... Um, Oh, you better keep this up because if you don't do it, then then what could happen next, right? It's like some medicines will say, you know, um, if you stop taking this, there'll be severe side effects, right? Like it always seemed like a brilliant marketing ploy, right? Like you don't want to risk like not taking your medicine and then and then what happens next? But um, right, well, before we, we go to questions, let me just ask you. I, I'm just a little bit curious about you going to the movies as a pattern finder. Like if you were to sit down at Snow White or <laughs> I don't know, Rapunzel. Like, in some of these classic tales, Prince Charming's do seem to arrive at the, you know, like, if Snow White is a, in some kind of coffin asleep for an enormously large amount of time, and it just happens that Prince Charming kind of gallops in, uh, and Prince Charming always gallops in. When you are, when you are listening to stories, did you want, do you like, when you go to, can you suspend your disbelief completely, or do you worry that the patterns here being offered by the storyteller are questionable. Well, I mean, maybe that's why I like films with more nonlinear or naturalistic storytelling, right? Because then I'm not overusing 
that part of my brain that gets really tired trying to dissect everything constantly. Oh, so you so if you're watching Hansel and Gretel and they leave the crumbs in the forest, you think, gee, I didn't know that they I didn't notice them eating cookies. But what about the possibility <laughs> that wind will come in and scatter the crumbs, perhaps rats or other forest animals? Yeah, when, eat you, the when you're stretching reality, you know, so like the um, I don't want to spoil the third season of House of Cards, for no, you example. You certainly don't. But as someone who, uh, who is an observer of politics, like this guy would have like a negative 12 approval rating at this point, <laughs> right? He would not have the wherewithal to get some of his measures through. Congress or any political capital. Are there people who will not go to the movies with you? No, I mean, I, you know, no, it's not. There are, there are people who won't do various things, right? But the movies, it's like people won't play poker with me, for example. Oh, well, but I can movies, understand that. Yeah. yeah. How about magic? When you watch magic tricks, does that bother you because you have to rack your brain I to figure out what the illusion is here, or do you, can you just fall into thrall? My parents hired a magician for my birthday one time, and it was the only time. <laughs> All right, well, we got a kind of sense of what you're about. Uh, uh, if you have any uh, questions, uh, this would be a for, yeah, go ahead. Uh, we have to, I think we're going to send somebody with a microphone near you, probably, right? Or, or you can ask the question, I'll just re ask it. Okay, well, you, I'll get to you in just a moment. Nate, I'm interested in your take on the uh, movie aggregator site Rotten Tomatoes, and, and it's, it's on mobile. Uh, application Flickster. You know, you, it's been around for years now, taking every review that's out there and creating a score. Yeah. Uh, what do you think of the accuracy of Rotten Tomatoes' work? And do you think there's a way to maybe even further perfect that through your group at 538? I mean, first of all, I think it's useful data to have. It allows us to do all sorts of fun things that we couldn't do before when you had no comprehensive database of how movies had been reviewed. Um, you know, I personally. Uh, like sites more where they rate them on a scale instead of just thumbs up or or thumbs down. You know, I'm someone who would rather um, go and see something that so that might be terrific and might be terrible versus something that is a safe bet to be good um, because then you can kind of have it. But you guys use Rotten Tomatoes, right, for for some of your analyses? We have, yeah, yeah and we've used like Metacritic for for some other stuff, right? Um, but you know, like I said, I'm a big I'm a big like foodie also. So you look at restaurant review sites, um, and I know if there's a restaurant that is either going to be awesome or terrible. If it's awesome, then you can tell your friends about it. It can be in your restaurant like repertoire forever. If it's terrible, okay, we've all seen a bad movie or had a bad meal here or there, right? Um, so you know, I think it's a useful first step, but also being able to kind of go through and say, okay, what are the things? that I'm suspicious about in, in a movie review, right? Oh, that guy likes it. Hmm. Maybe, maybe it's not so good after all. I'm fascinated by this idea, by the way, of people who are um, so opposite to your tastes or so bad at predicting that you can literally just do... Yeah, it works just as well. Yeah. If he hates it, then I must love it, and that's fine. Like, my partner is here, and we have a friend who has, like, um, I will not use her name, but has, like, the worst taste in restaurants of anyone in New York, right? So it's like, you know, anytime she recommends something, we're like, okay, scratch that off the list. Right? <laughs> I, did, I should ask you, just before we get to the next question, like, this burrito thing that you're on, like, like that's just strange. Like, can't somebody go out and enjoy a burrito without knowing that it's the best or third best or seventh best or in, in mar you know, in tier number two? I mean, there seems it's one thing to be a foodie, but to be a competitive foodie seems like a rather odd prejudice. Well, look, you have to eat a certain number of burritos. Um, why not eat the best burrito? What if the best burrito turns out to be in Las Vegas, California? Some of them are. And you it's have, like yes, and you're one you're of the in five was in like a strip mall in Lexington, Kentucky, for example. So you know, look, it was an ambitious thing, and part of it is we wanted to kind of play around with this, this notion of, you know, because you see lots of restaurant best of lists. You'll see, like, you know, Esquire magazine, the 12 best burritos in America. Like, we actually try to be rigorous about that, right? We're like, what would happen if you actually tried to be you serious? You can't be rigorous about that. I know. It's a little tongue-in-cheek, though. Like, one thing that doesn't come through, I don't know. It comes from this film a little bit, right? But, like, you know, at 538, you know, we are, like, a little irreverent and, like, a little skeptical, and, and you know, we're not being totally serious about things. So the burrito project was, you know, it was part kind of an 
inside joke, but also if you're going to do something fun, we think you should take your fun seriously. Well, I was a little bit worried about that woman who's gonna, whose mouth is going to have to consume all these. Oh, look, first of all, burritos are, he- are healthy, right? You're getting all the major food groups. I mean, they're healthy, but like, look, all the major you, But if there's a palate cleansing issue. Like, you have some woman who's going to eat all of the burritos that win the various... Like, and it is in her brain that is going to produce the winner, right? Like, it's, she's the ultimate... Yeah, and that's where, you know, ultimately it came down to to her burrito thing. Mm -hmm. To her point of view, although I went to the final four, as it were, and I agree with her judgment. (laughs) You did agree Um, with her judgment. What if you hadn't? What if you you said you're wrong? I mean, we know how good she is, right? She was, like, very qualified to be a burrito reviewer. Um, (laughs) But no, it's part of it. She has an honorary degree from the... No, so what we did, kind of used the data to narrow the list down. There were 65,000 places in the U.S. that serve a burrito basically, right? And we kind of narrow that down with the data to 64. And then, see, a lot of thing is you kind of, you get 80% of the way there with the data, and then the last 20% is, is harder, right? You know, Art. Sure. People get it wrong, though. What they do is they kind of make, the first 80% is, and I love art, right? But the first 80% is their subjective biases, right? And then they'll put a little window dressing of data around it to prove what they already believed, right? Um, that's very problematic. But to say, look, that data can give us a good rough cut of things. If I know anything about the movies, I'd rather go to Rotten Tomatoes 83 than 54, right? If I know exactly why certain movies are rated certain ways, and maybe I can catch more of the cases where, where they're the exceptions to the rule. Have your burrito selections been reviewed by... Other foodies, other than outside of your group? I mean, there's a place, Trace Carnes, which is just two blocks from here, and they probably have the 538 review, higher than the New York Times review on their, on their display. So. <laughs> All right, so, so we, we, yeah, you were, you were asking. Uh, let's see if we can, can you get one to this guy right here? Uh, let's pass it along, thank you. Um, Nate, you mentioned you went and saw the interview. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your thoughts on the Sony hacks and how that might have affected the movie. Was it the greatest marketing scheme for a movie or was it the most detrimental thing to happen to a movie studio? Enough people have gotten fired from that that although it would be a very clever marketing scheme, right? Um, <laughs> you know, but I mean, that is, is a little terrifying, right? And full disclosure, the company I consulted for was actually Sony. Sony. Yeah, oh. so I know a couple people in, involved and, um, you know, I mean, the terrifying part is the fact that we live in a world now where some, like, snippet of your conversations, um, you just have to assume that it could always be discovered by, by someone, right? That's a little bit, bit chilling to me. Um, there were some stupid things said in those emails, right? But, oh, yeah. You know, um, if I didn't hate emails so much and hate typing emails, then I would have a lot of stupid things in my email, too, right? But, well, did you hate, uh, did, you, did you find the movie a... What did you think of the interview? I thought the movie was fine. It was it was schlocky and stupid, and it was you know um, it didn't take itself seriously enough that people would really have taken offense from it. I don't think right. Um, it was good, stupid fun. It was fun to see it in an audience. That's not a movie I would want to see at home. If you want to see the movie, I would want to see it with the with the twenty five year olds. You know. <laughs> okay. You're listening to Tribeca Film Festival Live from WNYC. Coming up next, more with Nate Silver and Robert Krulwich. Any other questions? Oh, we have a bunch. Yes, okay. Um, I know you're into sabermetrics and baseball, and um, for, you know, for me, the, one of the, the, my favorite lines in Moneyball is when he says, We're, your, your goal is to buy wins, and to buy wins, you shouldn't be buying players, you should be buying runs. And to me, that was a real watershed moment for not just the movie, but baseball. And I think about that all the time and just how it, it requires somebody to really just step back. Yeah. And sort of re, you know, t- take a new angle on something that we've been thinking the wrong way about for 100 years. And I'm wondering if you can think of any sectors Are you or sure about the wrong way part, or do you think like another way? Another way. I'll, 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 I'll say another way. And I'm wondering if there's any other sectors or industries that you think are just ripe for for that sort of transition to where we really start counting different things and thinking about them differently? That's a a good question. That's a very good question. Um, You know, I mean, 
look for the places where people are most sure of themselves, right? And the problem is maybe it's things that, um, uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, you know, I think about education, for example, a lot where there's a lot of inertia against performing education, but there are also a lot of stupid things that can be done with, um, with cuts of the data that aren't, you know, very well thought through necessarily. Um, there are probably a lot of things that we take for granted, like, you know, the retail industry uses data in really interesting ways. But, you know, I would probably have in to In really spend, interesting ways or in really uninteresting ways? Well, just that, you know, how much Target knows about you if you shop at Target, ah. for example. Um, but trying to think about, like, what's my list of things that everyone is wrong about, I would have to go through and take, <laughs> you know. I mean, the complicated part of that kind of question, right, which is a great question to be asking yourself, right, is that, you know, one of the lessons of my book is that, on average, the crowd is right more often than not, right? right. It's not all that often when, um, when you're going to be able to beat the stock market or where you're going to be able to beat Las Vegas or the conventional wisdom even in Hollywood. Um, but the more self-certain the crowd becomes, the more apt they are to, to be wrong, right? It's a very kind of abstract way to think about it in terms of, you know, what things are people wrong about now? I, I, well, are, are you intimidated by the school system? It's, it's got 50 states with all these different school systems in those states, and there are teachers' unions in many of those states, and there are entrepreneurs and, and, and dazzling folks in many of those classrooms, and I don't know... Does that seem to you to be just too big and too hard? Um, I would think it would be very challenging. I mean, school, you know, a lot of school systems still can't track when one student uh, goes to one school in the school system and then they drop out for some reason and they re-enroll at another school across town. They might not even know that's the same student, right? So the basic level of record keeping is not, is not very good. Um, but, you know, I also worry. So one other problem we have is that when you're able to measure something, sometimes you can start to cater to that, whether or not it's a good measurement, necessarily. So. I'm really impressed by your new airline thing. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Here's one where you, you decide, oh, I'm going to go to Chicago tomorrow, and I'm going to leave from Newark. So you go to his site, and you write in, I'm going from Newark to Chicago, and here are all the airlines that do that. And the, the app tells you, or the, the site tells you, how many minutes short of the expected run are you going to get if you get on this airline? Like, how happily surprised you'll be on which airline? This one is like seven minutes better. Yeah, than Yeah, it's pretty. Other. It's pretty consistent. You know, don't fly United, who was formerly a five thirty eight sponsored, by the way. Uh, oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> their customer service people are very nice, right? But the airline's been really slow for a couple of years. But so, like, so to go back to his question, like that's a rather precise thing. It's almost like a service. Yeah, but the thing that mentioning education or some of these other big problems, those may be beyond your reach. Oh, of course. Yeah. Um, oh, I was. You gonna say of course? Well, I thought you were gonna get up and put on a cape or something. No, <laughs> I mean certainly things in. So right now I'm focused on on building out 538. And we have about 25 people, and we're hiring a few more. Right. So thinking about what are the scale and scope of projects that we can do that work in a daily or weekly or monthly news cycle, right? We publish six or seven stories a day, which is considered few by the standards of, of a lot of digital media sites. Nowadays, you might publish, you know, 60 or 70 things instead. Um, but the airlines project is, is something where the scope of it's not that complicated, right? The, in, the insight is just that, well, first of all, you know, we should be comparing airlines on the same route. Sure, if you fly to Hawaii, you can be on the time all the time, right? And second of all, don't worry about what the airlines tell you they're going to do. Look at what they actually do, right? You know, if it takes me <clears throat> an hour and 45 minutes to fly somewhere when it's, supposed to take, um, when it's supposed to take an hour and a half, that's still better than if it's supposed to take three hours and takes two and a half hours, yeah. right? So get rid of the airline marketing about on-time percentage. Just look at... Well, I was kind of surprised. Like, when you do the comparisons, it turns out that if you want to go to Chicago, this guy is, like, going to be three minutes later than the average, and this guy's going to be two minutes earlier than the average. Yeah. It's not, like, 40 minutes or anything. It's, it's like a little most, thin... For most, for most routes. But, you know, if you're, if you're taking four flights on a round trip, say I'm connecting from New York to Atlanta to... Uh, New Orleans or something, oh, right? it and back, then that's four flights, and if one airline saves me 10 minutes, I also personally feel like time spent in the air transit system is like the worst time <laughs> you can spend, at least as a privileged person, I suppose. All right, last question before we, before we go home, or wherever you're going, or go to the next movie, or whatever pass you've bought. 
Yes. Hello. Yep, now you're... Hey, Nate. Um, you mentioned the UK election earlier, a notoriously difficult election to kind of predict. Um, a lot of the national polls focus mostly on an average um, national voting, although with a constituency kind of first-past-the-post system, um, it becomes very difficult to actually predict. I'm wondering how you go about um, building a model that takes that into account, considering that majority of polls only have about 1,000 um, people that are polled for. Yeah, so, um, so we have a group of academics in the UK that we're partnering with uh, to do a forecast, and they see this as a highly messy outcome. You're probably not going to have anyone with the, with the majority. Um, and even who wins a plurality is not very clear either. Um, but yeah, you know, one thing about the US is that if we have only two parties, right, and when it's a Coke or Pepsi kind of choice, then that's easier to model than when people have a multi-way decision to make, as they do, by the way, in the presidential primaries. So forecasting what will happen in Iowa and New Hampshire for the GOP is more challenging. Um, you know, we are seeing more local-level polling now um, in the UK. There's this uh, rich guy named Lord Ashcroft who decided, I'm just going to spend lots and lots of money doing polls in tiny little places in Wales and Scotland and England um, where these had never existed before. And so, you know, why would, excuse me, if I, if I were very rich, I don't know that I'd say, I'd like to poll <laughs> Franconia, New Hampshire a few times. Why? I would be pleased if you did that. I know you would be, but you're yeah. a little weird. But like, what, why would the rich guy be? <laughs> I don't know. I think, oh. he's, I think he's interested. It's an interesting problem. And it's like actually providing a lot of a valuable insight to election forecasters and, and um, letting people know how people feel in individual constituencies. Oh, so, so he's like one of your helpers, like a, a little helper, a little rich lord helper. A little lord, yeah. yeah. Um, if you were in the U.S., he'd probably be like a lobbyist. Sheldon Appleson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, look, I, we, I, there's, there are secret signals being sent to me called enough. <laughs> so, uh, so I guess we will honor that. But thank you really very much. It's been like cool. Thank you. Thank you. This is Tribeca Film Festival Live from WNYC. On the next episode, Shots of Philosophical Espresso with Jason Silva.